0: Hello and welcome to Purdy's Podcast. Today we're discussing the Reformation, Martin Luther, and so much more. Good afternoon, World Civ students. Today we're going to be discussing the Reformation. The Reformation and the Renaissance are often paired together in standard high school-level world history books because they occurred roughly at the same time, but they haven't much in common beyond this point. And I gave a brief timeline about both epics in the letter, which you can review on page one. However, the Reformation was led by churchmen like Martin Luther, who initially merely wanted to reform or improve the Roman Catholic Church, not leave it, and certainly not destroy it. The Renaissance artists might have been critical of the church at times—Leonardo, Michelangelo, Sandra Botticelli—but none of them participated in the Reformation. While some were wayward, they were all Catholics. As Martin Luther grew up in the late 1400s, his Europe was entirely Catholic. Muslims had been expelled from the Iberian Peninsula in 1492, along with the Jewish population. While there were tiny Jewish communities still living in some Western European and Italian cities, for the most part, everyone west of Poland and north and west of the Balkans were members of the Catholic Church and acknowledged the Pope in Rome as their spiritual leader. Then that all changed with Martin Luther's career. By 1500, the Catholic Church was just a hot mess in Europe. Priests and bishops were not making their parishioners' spiritual lives their main focus, but many were living a high life of luxury and corruption. No general council had been called since the 1430s, even though there was supposed to be one called every 10 years. The popes of the time were not very spiritually focused, no, not at all. Pope Alexander VI, 1492 to 1503, who came from the infamous Borgia family, had lots of affairs with different women. And Pope Julius II, 1503 to 1513, who hired Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling, was bloody-minded, loving war and riding into battle himself in full armor. Martin Luther visited Rome in 1508 when Julius II was selling indulgences to raise money to pay for St. Peter's Cathedral's renovation. If there was one thing that really ticked off Martin Luther, it was indulgences. These were certificates sold by the church that guaranteed you would receive less or no time in purgatory after you died and could go straight on to heaven. Luther thought it was a horribly corrupt and fake practice, and he began lecturing and preaching to reform the church. Where past reformers fizzled out, Luther had a new weapon to use, the printing press. He made sure his sermons were printed up and sent out all around Europe, spreading his message, and it worked very well as he gained more and more popularity but beyond Wittenberg, the university town in Germany where he worked as a scholar. On October 31st, 1517, which was All Saints' Eve, Luther nailed his 95 theses or arguments to the front door at Castle Church in Wittenberg. And it was game on the church in Rome heard of Luther's growing popularity and despised his anti-corruption message. And so they officially excommunicated him in June 1520. There were lots of German princes though who liked Luther's ideas and who were tired of Rome and tired of Italians too. The Holy Roman Emperor and a German, Charles V, had Luther appear at a meeting called the Diet of Worms in 1521 promising he would be safe from the church to discuss his controversial views. Well, Martin Luther brought the house down, ending his remarks as follows. I am over, quote, I am overcome by the scriptures I've quoted. My conscience is captive to God's word. I cannot and will not revoke anything. For to act against conscience is neither safe nor honest. Here stay ich, ich kann nicht anders. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. This inflamed the Catholic Church even more against Luther, and he had to hide out in Wartburg Castle, protected by a Protestant prince. And here on, on uh, this page in the letter, you can see a picture of the little door where Luther nailed his 95 theses. Now, Luther was no radical revolutionary. He opposed a revolt of German peasants led by Wendelin Hippler in 1524 and the rebels were absolutely crushed. Luther knew his future lay with the German elites and royalty. They were the only ones who could protect him from being arrested and executed by the Pope's forces. Soon the stormy political scene settled somewhat with Protestant leader Philip Melanchthon, Luther's good friend, issuing the Confession of Augsburg, which set out the core beliefs of the new reformation. Also, German princes agreed to a rough compromise with each other that cuius regio eius regio which is whoever has the right to rule also has the right to determine religion so german leaders could decide what faith all of their people would be and it would simplify the complex political landscape so if your if your prince was protestant you were protestant if your prince was catholic you were catholic Now, Martin Luther was often called upon to practice what he preached, and never so much as when a wave of bubonic plague swept through Germany in 1527, 500 years ago. The local political leader, Elector John, asked Luther to flee Wittenberg to go to Jena with a bunch of the other university faculty. Yet Luther remained to keep teaching. And then when the plague hit with full force, he conducted Protestant last rites and cared to the dying Tylo Dean, the wife of a local official, the Burgomaster, died virtually in his arms. Wittenberg needed Luther and its other leaders, as society showed the strain of the plague's effects for months, with grave diggers roaring drunk at funerals, and Luther sharply criticized husbands for leaving their wives during the outbreak, in general calling for greater charity and compassion all around. Luther himself became ill and when he recovered, he wrote a famous letter, whether one may flee from a deadly plague in which he responded to a friend's request for doctrinal advice on this issue. In this letter, Luther was clear about the responsibilities of clergy. After all, it had been the Catholic Church's failures during the Black Death of the the mid 14th century that had laid the groundwork for Luther's reformation. In his letter, Luther wrote, Preachers and pastors must likewise remain steadfast before the peril of death. We have a plain command from Christ, A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but the hireling sees the wolf coming and flees. For when people are dying, they most need a spiritual ministry, which strengthens and comforts their consciences by word and sacrament, and in faith overcomes death. Luther went on to state, quote, all those in public office, such as mayors, judges and the like, are under obligation to remain and urged families to take care of each other and for neighbors and friends to care for orphaned children. Luther argued for the construction of hospitals, a novel idea for the time, and in general, a broad community response to such outbreaks, writing, quote, if a deadly epidemic strikes, we should stay where we are, make our preparations and take courage in the fact that we are mutually bound together so that we cannot desert one another or flee from one another. Now class, for all of Luther's admirable qualities, we must also remember that he has influenced many Europeans, Germans especially, with his intensely bitter anti-Semitic beliefs. This is 500 years before the Holocaust, but Luther's, or 400 years rather, but Luther's 1543 tract the Jews and their lies is full of pretty terrible accusations and lies about the Jewish population of Germany. This story is sadder even more considering that Luther had begun his career defending German Jews from persecution. In his 1523 essay, Jesus Christ was born a Jew, he wrote, if I had been a Jew and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would sooner have become a hog than a Christian. They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. So what changed for Luther and the Jews over 20 years and his views on Judaism? It's possible he became an old angry man and was generally lashing out. But what is more likely is that he expected Germany's Jewish population to convert to Protestantism once he had really started working at that mission When they did not, Luther was incensed. In any case, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 2017 was marked by celebrations, but also lamentations. At the anti-Semitic tone, Luther had struck and its long-term foul influences on Germany and the world. Let's take a break there. When we come back, we'll be on with Purdy's podcast. You're back on with Purdy's podcast. Let's move over to England and its Reformation history. Protestantism started to catch fire in other parts of Europe after Martin Luther, even in England, which the Pope had always considered the most loyal Catholic kingdom. King Henry VIII of the Six Wives fame broke away from Rome because he wanted to divorce his wife Catherine of Aragon so desperately, and Rome would not let him do it. Henry had also been a great, had always been a great Catholic defender, even writing a tract against Luther and earning a Pope's award as defender of the faith. But while Catherine of Aragon had given birth to a daughter, Mary, Henry wanted a son to follow him on the throne. The English parliament was absolutely fine with the idea of breaking away from Rome and did so in three acts. Number one, the act of Annates, 1532, which cut off tax monies to Rome. Secondly, the Act of Appeals in 1533, which cut back Rome's jurisdiction or control over English church affairs. And third, the Act of Supremacy, 1534, the biggie, which made King Henry VIII the head of the Catholic Church in England. The second he was named head of the church, Henry, there's a picture of him on the page, annulled his marriage with Catherine and married Anne Boleyn, a picture of her on the page as well, who he had pursued for seven years while waiting for his marriage with Catherine to be over. Thomas More, Henry's loyal and talented advisor, would not sign off on the legality of the annulment. And so he was executed, which caused shockwaves to run through Europe that Henry VIII could be so fickle and bloody-minded. Anne Boleyn gave birth to the future Queen Elizabeth I, But this was not enough for Henry. He still wanted a son. After Anne miscarried, and apparently it had been a boy, Henry had her arrested and executed for treason, for allegedly sleeping around at court. The charges were false, and historians such as Antonia Frazier believe Henry was projecting his own shady behavior onto his wife and later wives, too, and just assumed she acted like him. Anne Boleyn's brave final words are famous and are set forth below. Good Christian people, I am come hither to die, for according to the law, and by the law I am judged to die, and therefore I will speak nothing against it. I am come hither to accuse no man, nor to speak anything of that, whereof I am accused and condemned to die. But I pray God save the king, and send him long to reign over you. For a gentler nor a more merciful prince was there never and to me he was ever a good a gentle and sovereign lord and if any person will meddle of my cause i require them to judge the best and thus i take leave of the world and of you all and i heartily desire you all to pray for me o oh, lord have mercy on me to god i commend my soul jane seymour was henry's next wife in 1537 she gave birth to a son the future edward the 6th and then died a couple of weeks later from an infection arising from her labor and delivery. Henry VIII was brokenhearted and ordered himself interred next to her when he died. His next two wives fared poorly. He had his marriage with Anne of Cleves annulled, and after his last wife, Catherine Howard, cheated on him, had her executed. His last wife, Catherine Parr, survived his reign, fortunately. Edward VI became king when he was nine years old, but never had been healthy, and he didn't rule long. This was disruptive for England because Catholics and Protestants were still striving to be the main religion in the country. Mary I, the strongly Catholic daughter of Catherine of Aragon, remember her earlier in the podcast, rose to power and was given the nickname Bloody Mary for her persecution of Protestants. She married King Philip of Spain and apparently planned to unify the two countries as good Catholic kingdoms. Mary thought at the end of her life that she bore Philip's child, but sadly, she was dying the whole time she thought she was pregnant, possibly of uterine cancer. She knew Elizabeth, her Protestant cousin, would succeed her, and this made her furious. Elizabeth barely avoided being executed, and indeed, when she was informed of her accession, thought she might be getting arrested. Elizabeth was crowned and and led England firmly down a Protestant path. Now let's take a break and when we come back, we'll talk about Calvinism on Purdy's podcast. Thank you very much. (laughs) All right, you're back on with Purdy's podcast. On to Calvinism, a sub-branch of Protestantism. Ulrich Zwingli, a Protestant thinker from Zurich, Switzerland, predates the events and ideas discussed in this section. He was an early Protestant. But when Zurich refused to hand him over to the Catholic Church in 1523, it showed how serious this revolt of ideas had become. John Calvin, John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, was a radical French Protestant whose ideas first took hold in Switzerland and then spread across Europe. He had a brand new idea of predestination, that everyone was born either as chosen or damned. If you were chosen, you would know it for the pure, simple, devout life you led. It would just shine through. Calvinists didn't drink, dance, wear colorful clothes, celebrate holidays, or anything else, really. They were aiming for a life as Dullsville as possible. Reading the Bible was meant to be their one fun thing to do every day. The Puritans arose from this movement, and despite persecution, even came to rule England for a while under Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s, and of course to found the Massachusetts Bay Colony here in the USA. Calvinist ideas were adopted by the middle-class people of the growing towns and cities and converted lots of nobility, too, who wanted this new purpose-driven life. In France, Calvinists there were called Huguenots and struggled for power with the Catholics and lost in the wars of religion, finally being expelled from France in 1685. And evidently, the Purdy's, uh, my surname originally French Huguenots, that had to bolt from French from France after uh, that doctrinal war was lost, going on to England and Scotland and everywhere else. Scotland's Calvinists were led by John Knox, 1503 to 1572. They became known as Presbyterians. What are the effects of Protestantism? Well, the main effects are as follows: The Bible was key and Protestants taught it in the people's language, whatever it was, German, French, English, etc. And so the literacy rate went up because Protestants were supposed to be able to read the Bible even just a little bit. In a world civ class, I have to mention the Max Weber thesis from 1905 too, that Protestantism helped build the conditions necessary for capitalism. This idea has been refuted a lot because it helps fuel the myth that Southern Catholic Europe is underdeveloped, lazier, and uneducated compared to Northern Europe. Also, Weber is credited with the idea of the Protestant work ethic that was given credit a century ago for Northern and Western Europe's economic advances. As capitalism really took off in Renaissance-era Italy, along with bookkeeping, insurance, and accounting too, this is not a strong argument. Renaissance-era Italy was as Catholic as you might ever get. Third, the Reformation ended the idea of a united Christendom. Now there were Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and lots of different Protestant churches. Instead of talking about Christendom, Europeans started to talk more about Europe as their home. Fourth, music received a boost from Luther's enthusiasm in having hymns set to organ arrangements in the Protestant churches. Music was their weakness. Evidently, Luther was a good tenor singer and loved it. The Catholic Church responded to the Reformation with reforms of their own, best captured in the long-waited-for Council of Trent meetings in the mid-1500s and the establishment of the Society of Jesus as Jesuits, as military priests, teachers, soldiers of the faith, who built schools and converted millions around the world to the faith. Quote, Give me the child until the age of seven, said St. Ignatius of Loyola, and I'll give you the man. The worst aspect of the Reformation was the terrible bloodshed brought by religious wars between Catholics and Protestants in the 1500s and 1600s. For example, the Peace of Augsburg in 1555 was just a temporary fix until the Thirty Years' War of 1618 to 1648, Armies marched over Germany for decades and caused tremendous damage and suffering, so much that some historians, including me, think it delayed German unification for at least 200 years, when it might have happened much sooner, and dare I say, more peacefully. France's religious wars were only ended when a Protestant claimant to the throne, Henri of Navarre, reconverted to the Catholic faith as part of the deal for him becoming king. Paris Vobine une mess, he admitted. Terrible pronunciation. It's Paris is worth a mass, a Catholic mass. He was crowned at Chartres Cathedral in 1594. Henri then issued the Edict of Nantes in fifteen ninety-eight, which believe me, gave little protection to Protestants who were completely expelled from France in 1685. And France has pretty much been Catholic since then up to the late 20th and early 21st century. There was so much ridiculous bloodshed in this period that historians believe people became more willing to imagine new ways of viewing life and existence. And thus the groundwork was laid for the scientific revolution of Isaac Newton and others. Renaissance-era scholar Copernicus served the king of Poland against the Germanic Teutonic Knights who wanted to take over Poland. Copernicus advised the king on monetary policy, and while doing lots of other things, reinvented the idea of the universe, switching from an earth-centered Aristotelian model, Aristotle's model, to the sun-centered one, the heliocentric solar system. The key is that Copernicus developed his ideas through constant experimentation and so helped develop the scientific method too. He published his De Revolutionibus Urbium Coelestium on his deathbed in 1543 and was content with his life's work. But then his publisher was scared of the Catholic Church crushing him like a bug and buried the main ideas, their revolutionary flavor and impact in a misleading introductory section that he wrote. So the world had to wait for Galileo in the 1600s to pick the Copernican thread back up. Well, that's it for our discussion of the Reformation, and that's all for this episode of Purdy's Podcast. Thanks very much, and have a great afternoon.